Welcome to the Workplace Evolution Podcast, in association with Management Today and Michael Page, part of the Page Group. Yes, welcome back everyone to the Workplace Evolution Podcast. I'm Michael Costello and I'm humbled, honoured and inspired to have met our latest guest, Leroy Logan, former Met Police Superintendent, whose life has recently been shared on the small screen by director Steve McQueen in the BBC and Amazon Small Axe series. Here's a serious question for you. What do you do when you witness direct or indirect discrimination or blatant racism? Even more difficult, what do you do when you feel the culture of an organization has systemic issues harming the inclusivity and diversity of your organization? These questions are relevant to us now more than ever with the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, primetime comedians coming out and apologizing for past behavior, Premier League footballers speaking out weekly, and hate crimes sadly continuing to rise across the UK. All of which we explore, by the way. To answer these questions, we draw on the inspirational and emotional moments of Leroy's career, starting with his father's savage beating at the hands of the police in the 1980s as he joined the force. Also his experiences of discrimination and prejudice in the force, testing his own safety, but also what he calls his calling to change the force from within. Many would have walked away and I ask him what stopped him. What struck me about Leroy was his belief that the victims of discrimination have to take ownership of the situation and not just point the finger. He did this working on the Stephen Lawrence inquiry, the Black Police Officers Association, and even the tragic case of Damiola Taylor. What really struck me was his last powerful and sincere message to Met Police Commander Cressida Dick on what he believes needs to change within the force. Do watch the Small Axe series if you get the chance. Look up Leroy's book, Closing Ranks, out now, describing his journey, and even better, take a look at the charity Voyage Youth that Leroy remains involved with today. For now, enjoy the podcast. Leroy Logan, a very warm welcome to the podcast. The focus of our conversation today is not just on your incredible journey within the police force and the challenges you faced, but also how leaders and managers can develop a more inclusive workforce. Alongside that, of course, we've got your new book coming out, Closing Ranks, My Life as a Cop. The book is described as one man's lifetime campaign to break down prejudice and stereotypes and a powerful insight into race relations in Britain today. It sounds like a movie, which is <laughs> ironic because as I understand it, your life story is actually being made into a film by Steve McQueen. Is, is that correct, Leroy? Yeah, uh, well, it's part of my life. Because Steve McQueen is doing a, a five episode series of independent stories. And it, it covers Caribbean people who have been in this in this country from the 60s to the 80s and he picked my story it's called red white and blue where john boyega will be playing me well up to my first few years in the police service and i've got a younger version playing me from school in the 60s right up to my 70s and then john boyega takes over from then to my middle sort of mid mid 80s because I went to the private showing last week and it's absolutely amazing. It's so authentic. Steve McQueen didn't get an Oscar for nothing. You know, it, it, I, I don't give away the story, you know, a lot of it's documented, but it has a very interesting end, which I think says, hmm, maybe there's a follow-up. I'm sure it asks some big questions. And Steve McQueen, of course, gives you an incredible introduction to you in the book. You yourself, of course, endured direct and indirect acts of discrimination due to the colour of your skin in the police force. However, the first and foremost uh, and most significant incident was with your father in 1983. Whilst you were actually enrolling in the police, can you tell us about what happened back then, Leroy? Secretly behind my father's back, which wasn't very wise, applying to join the Met. Uh, at the time, I was a, a clinical researcher at the Royal Free Hospital, and I got the calling of policing through so many different ways. 
local officers used to use our facility, sporting facilities at the Royal Free. I got to know them. They took me on drive rounds, etc. And I started to get that appetite. And then my boss was doing my annual appraisal and he said to me, Leroy, you're a great scientist. We get on well, but I don't see you being uh, stuck in a lab for the next 20, 30 years. You're too outgoing. I think you should do something where you interact with people a lot more. And I said, what do you think I should do? And he said, oh, I should become a cop. And I said, do I look like a racist? You know, and I thought, has he been following me around with those officers or something like that? <laughs> it, it, it ends up that uh, I, I put in an application and it, it's so successful. They wanted me to join. However, between that sort of uh, mid um, 82 to the new date in June 83, my father was beaten up by police over a traffic matter and he was in his late 50s so he wasn't your stereotypical hard nut type person he was arrested fortunately he was able to sue the met for unlawful arrest and excessive force you know he wanted my best interests and when he found out inadvertently that i was joining the met he was really upset because he, he thought my path was charted towards science and possibly medicine and that really took him by surprise. So when he heard after, you know, it was after he, he was uh, badly beaten up, he, he couldn't believe that I was joining the organization then. It, it took a lot of time to try and resolve um, between me and him, but eventually he did. So that when I finally was joining in 83, he actually took me to Hendon the day before. He took me to Hendon in his car. We had a chance to restore quite a lot of <laughs> broken relations, even mm. though, he, you know, there was never a time when he didn't love me or he didn't support me. Yeah. Even though I was married with a child on the way and I was living away from home, but all the same, you still want your father's love going into such a culture change because it was my worst nightmare. And, you know, leaving the really soft, positive environment of, science into a really hard hitting at times very negative type of existence yeah uh, militaristic existence in the met as a as a father myself you know it's not just uh, the, the, it wouldn't have just been the culture it's also of course your your own son's going into a high risk situation as well it must have been very difficult for him and you describe a moment in the book where you actually saw him in A&E and you didn't actually recognize him. And to, to quote, you said that you had never sensed as much hate as you did in that moment. You could smell it. You could taste it. It would have been very easy for you to have walked away, Leroy, at that point. What stopped you? What is that calling? As I said, you know, that, that voice in my head kept on nagging at me and you know it's in my heart as well I'm thinking gosh am I losing my mind why would I go against my father what he wants for me my mother oh she, she was always supportive again she just wanted me to do make the right choices and if well fortunately my, my fiance Gretel who's still my wife she said well it may be something that you should really look to towards doing you know it, all these sort of things really came crashing down but i'd still had that strength of character say listen i've got to try this fortunately for for us that you, you did join the force and over time you achieved excellent results you rose through through the ranks uh, diligent work dedicated work innovation as well which we'll, we'll, we'll come on to within the community yet you still faced direct or in, indirect discrimination in in many different ways what was that that you that you faced at the force but also can you give advice to anyone that's listening that faces that sort of discrimination well i think one of the first things anyone is facing that sort of discrimination it is not okay to face that and you should speak up for yourself and if you don't feel strong enough then please get a mentor or even an, a representative organization if you haven't got one whether it's a union or some sort of support network, because you need that strength of character to challenge some of the systemic failures of your organization, whether it's on race, gender, lifestyle, whatever. And don't think that you're the only one that's going through this. There'll be others. So you can get that collective response, because that was one of the driving forces behind 
the Black Police Association, which I helped to form, because we realized that it wasn't just a microcosm of issues. It was met wide in the early 90s. We realized that people were going through uh, very casual racist comments in the canteen, out on the street, and not necessarily directed at the officers themselves, but also members of the public that looked like them. And it was devastating to just be complicit by being silent. And that sense of betrayal to your community. I mean, well, I definitely felt that. And I thought, well, we've got to do something about this. And I suppose the defining time was the McPherson inquiry, because we launched in 94 and we gave myself and two other Black Police Association members gave evidence at McPherson in 98 to say that police service were institutionally racist. But we weren't just pointing the finger to say they're systemic failures. That we had three fingers pointing back at us saying, what are we going to do? So we took ownership of lots of the recommendations that came out because there was, a, a, I think, a window of opportunity to really make significant, not just systemic changes, but also cultural change because that, that very militaristic, uh, macho culture, testosterone driven type of environment is quite toxic for people who find that in, inappropriate or unacceptable. Some people find, well, if I assimilate, I can get on with it. You know, I'll, I'll keep my head down. Yes. But I'm a great believer if you keep your head in the sand, at some stage, your butt's going to get kicked. So yeah, that's, it, the, that's the worst advice I've ever received, Leroy, yeah. in, in early jobs. It's just, just keep your head down and you might just make it here. But, but actually, what you've described there is, is no one's playing a victim here. Mm. And actually, you, you're assertive enough to say, actually, this, this is not an us and them situation. This is something that each of us need, need to take responsibility for. So what, what were the sorts of things that you recommended that black police officers take responsibility for? It, it, it's incumbent on us in a lot of ways as minority groups going into a majority culture it's incumbent on us to challenge and we have to be responsive to not say every single situation but you know because you've got, got to pick your challenges wisely so you have to be vigilant to what's going on and where you need to challenge make sure you have the evidence to show you know if it means that the organization is not going to respond. You, you need to act. You, you might need to confront your supervisors or your managers. And I know it's tough because I've had to do it myself. And I think to myself, well, they're going to believe I'm some self-appointed upstart who doesn't know anything and should know his place. But if you've got a mandate and the evidence from other, um, not necessarily victims, but people have experienced similar sort of disproportionalities or prejudices of one form or another, then you need to show that evidence. And I, that's what we did in McPherson. It, it was irrefutable. The evidence is still there. In, internal disproportionality for black personnel and service delivery in terms of the black community. Yeah. And we showed that there's an inextricable link between how you serve the needs of your diverse personnel so you're better equipped to serve the needs of your diverse community. And once you get that inextricable link, you realize treat people right, and you will be able to serve people even better. Now, I, I know you're an Arsenal fan. Are you still an Arsenal fan? Yeah, yeah still a few um, from, from boy to man. <laughs> so one area that we've seen slow but positive developments in the UK in the Premier League is, is the Kick It Out campaign. We even saw England walking off at half-time in solidarity against Bulgaria. In the past, you know, players we're not as outspoken, perhaps in the 80s, but, but now we're seeing more positive challenge taking place. What do you think needs to take place in the police that enables employees to openly challenge the culture without fear of retaliation? You know, what needs to come from the top to create that environment? Well, you've got to have a strong narrative that you are an open and transparent organisation that welcomes challenge because the precursor of challenge is change. And as a result of that, changes are constant in any viable modern organisation. And if you welcome that, 
and it's not seen as oh you're a traitor or in any way um, seen as a threat then again from the top you will see people being more confident to say listen it's just maybe a small thing but it has big impact if you can change this on how even appraisals how they're done and how the evidence is accumulated to ensure that first-line supervision is a critical role to not only see the talent but nurture it to the, in, the best interest of that individual that team that organization and i think that's it's those small things that can devalue people or reduce their confidence for example we know about corridor conversations which it might be the small things you know it's those sort of small microaggressions which don't account to anything significant in its isolation but put it together it's a massive impact and oh well we don't think you're quite ready for promotion so i would suggest you get an extra year two years to get that experience we we think you need whereas that conversation doesn't take place with a, a white counterpart if you're not clear on your own ability then you'll think oh they're right and you you keep yourself back and, and again you lose your confidence to say well listen you need to know when you feel right to put yourself forward this is helen sharman britain's first astronaut on the workplace evolution podcast it's the only podcast to give you real space and time to think about the workplace do you think you're your own self-regard came into play there, Leroy, that, that actually meant you went for, uh, for, for opportunities or was it something else? No, I, I think it's how I was brought up and knowing, you know, I had experiences in Jamaica where I saw black cops, black doctors, black nurses, teachers, etc., excelling on their merits. So if I could see it, I can do it. And that, that helped me to go into the organisation, not to assimilate but actually integrate because I saw I was a black man who happened to be a cop because in retirement, I'm still a black man. That also gave me the confidence to say, I'm as good as anyone else, if not better. Yeah. There's a certain amount of arrogance with that, but that self-belief is so important. I knew that I was just as good as anyone else. Yeah. And I wasn't going to be defined by um, a supervisor who I felt was being inappropriate or, uh, wasn't being objective and made some stereotypes and assumptions which I could pick up very quickly and I suppose it's that's the thing if you've got that sort of lens to spot that microaggression coming at you and because it's not so much what they do to you it's what they withdraw from you oh well oh, I didn't hear about that job and it's open and closed before I knew it mm. um, yeah. the, even though you put the evidence of being one of the best performers in, on your team someone else gets the job because some of them took some of your evidence and put forward. So, and, it, and even when you challenge your supervisors, they said, well, that's, well, that's what it, that's how you play the game. And you think, well, what game is that? Absolutely. And, and Absolutely. So you, you, you got to know, and this is where social networking and support networks are so important to give, fill back up that void of discontent and, and, a lack of a lack of confidence with okay this is how i play the game and make sure i'm successful at it yeah now there'll be lots of people listening that are thinking well maybe you just weren't up to the job but actually when you think about rigor in selection you want openness so actually you want to know that there's a job out there you want it to be fair so actually you know solid interview panel with some due diligence and process but, but also promotion on merit and your, your merit did certainly shine, shine through and we'll, we'll come on to that. You've described the importance of narrative and then you've moved down to the, the micro factors, microaggression. And I want to pick you up on, on that a little bit more. We've seen many, many comedians last year come out, Anton Deck, Matt Lucas, David Walliams, Lee Francis on Bo Selector, all apologising for dressing up as black people um, for, for the use of humour. Danny Baker being sacked for his comments on, on Meghan Merkel. Each of them at the time not realising the offence it caused. Let's get back to the workplace. How should line managers deal with this 
type of humor, this low level micro aggression, especially when, you know, someone turns around to them and says, you know, we, we were just having a laugh. Well, I think as a supervisor, I think one of the biggest jumps is from being um, an unsupervised person, being a supervised person to then being a supervisor. That quantum leap, you've got to be clear that you have to have a critical distance so that you're as objective as possible when you see the complaint of the individual that this is going on so that you don't fall in line with the aggressor because the aggressor might be Mr. Popular or Miss Popular. They are seen as a driving force in the team. You know, sometimes it's you know, that, that person who gives the tempo and rhythm of the team. Now, that's when it's a real challenge, because if you're a supervisor and you have to take the evidence and make it clear that this is having an impact, even if it's in humour and you might have to go against the, the culture of that team or that organisation, understand you're not going to be Mr. Popular or Mrs. Popular. It mm. is clear that you need to have that strength of character. Say, listen, we need to deal with these small things so we can deal with the bigger things of the organization. We cannot allow our diversity to be eroded by decibels or by humor. And it's quite clear that you as a supervisor have the heartbeat of the organization. Similar in the Met, there's too many, even though it's the minority, but there's too many constables with stripes. There is, there's a sergeant by the, the chevrons on their, their sleeve, but they've still got a constable's mentality and they find it difficult to really challenge the team because there is that proximity because you're working with them every day. But if, and you know that if you stand up for a, a person, a minority, for whatever reason, culture, gender, etc., mm. that you might be seen as a threat. Now that, goes with the turf. So taking on supervision should be clearly recognizing the role and the responsibility. And that, I believe, can permeate through the organization as what, because the, the top needs to recognize the importance of first lines and supervision and how that can really create the culture of your team to be even more efficient and effective. So we've had leaders on from all public and private sector that that need to be liked needs to be lost as you rise through through the ranks and you yourself when commenting on the police culture in the past has said that there has there is actually a a blind loyalty to each other they're, they're, i think they were, they were the exact words do you think there is that that likability that need to be liked that need to be loved is in the culture but it's to the detriment of the police it is when it goes to go too far if you have your your environment in which you operate like in policing can have a real risk for the for the officers and members of the public because of certain suspects you have to deal with or events that might materialize. So there's a massive risk factor. And you have to call on your team to assist you to mitigate those risks. You want to be part of a team. Now, if, if in doing that, you're a victim and you call out and whistleblow, then it might have added risk for you in those volatile situations. Yeah. Now, that's where the dilemma is. Yeah. But you need to nip those things in the bud very quickly and say, and make it clear that if we're not a cohesive team, anyone could be at risk because the last thing you want, if, if anyone's in a fight or, or in a risk situation, you know, paramedics and, you know, blue light agency personnel are finding that they are victims of assaults and other forms of violence. And as a result of that, they need to know their team members will back them up or even members of the public. So it's important that you get that understanding of the team dynamics and how the importance of keeping that team as cohesive and communicative and positive as possible. Yeah. Because if you don't, it, it can fall out. And I remember 
the fallout for me was loud and clear when I when I was victim of being surrounded and you know there was a people were saying well I can't hear you what's your location I'm thinking come on you know where I am you know I did a transmission earlier that sort of thing and I hear about other officers who got quite a savage beating because no one came to the rescue quick enough because you've got to make sure that you can't allow the ethos of that team to override minorities of one form or another who might be at risk because of your culture and that's the key it sounds an incredibly difficult tightrope to balance maintaining critical distance but also maintaining respect so that the team actually has your back and you've mentioned the mcpherson inquiry 1999 21 years ago which followed the flawed investigation into the murder of stephen lawrence it was concluded that the force was institutionally racist specified that there were attitudes, values, and beliefs which led officers to act, albeit unconsciously and for the part unintentionally, and treat others differently solely because of their ethnicity or culture. You actually contributed to that inquiry. Can you give us some examples of how bias impacts uh, policing today in, in your opinion, and what you think leaders can do to challenge bias in employee behavior initially it can be just that supervisor whether it's first line secondary etc making certain assumptions about individuals that they might not be up to scratch they they might believe that they will need extra supervision or they have a certain more suspicion because we're finding even in the met over 20 years later since mcpherson that off black officers in the Met and other force areas are four to five times more likely to be subject to discipline than their white counterparts. That has been a trend since they've been monitoring the recruitment retention progression piece. And we're still seeing that officers are two to three times more likely to leave the organization in the first two years during the probationary period than their white counterparts. So that's saying something about how you recruit and retain uh, people are being supervised, how you're getting appraisals done, how you are bringing in positive action to nurture that talent and celebrate that diversity in a way that people recognize they're an attribute. Get it clear that one, there's a human business and moral case to this. The evidence is there. Are you making sure that if there is any microaggressions or any barriers, small as it may be, how are you detecting them? Well, the grievance procedure. How many of grievance procedure has been NFA'd? No further action. Um, and how is that passed into the learning of the organisation? Because it's no use having an issue that showing there's a fault in the organisation. You're going to learn from it. One of the things I, I, I've said that the Met Police is not just suffering from institutional racism, they suffer from institutional amnesia. They don't learn from their mistakes. They fall into the same mistakes. And they're doing that now because of certain narratives that come from the top saying, well, institutional racism is no longer required, it's unhelpful, and we're not going to investigate the um, Stephen Lawrence case, even though there's three suspects still hasn't been put before the courts. And, and not only the impact it has on the public, especially the black communities, but also the black officers thinking, that's an iconic case. So understand those things, how it can also support your, organ, your, your officers to say, well, listen, I know I'm part of uh, an employee of choice, an employee of choice, and I want to stay in there and, and, and achieve my true potential and, and you know, ensure we achieve the objectives of not only just arrests, but prevent people from um, offending in the first place and get the public to buy into safer and stronger communities. And, and understand that, that that is key to, I believe, a more proactive organisation. I mean, it, it mentioned in the inquiry, or unconscious and unintentional acts. 
What does that look like on the front line? Because there's a, there's a lot of, you see so much on the social media, um, complaints, many quite, quite rightly of, of arrests or what it's stop and search, some high profile athletes and po politicians being involved. Where are things going wrong on the front line in terms of bias, Leroy? I think there is an issue about certain people join the organization for the wrong reasons. Some of them are going into the, the, the power trip. And, and, and unfortunately, they're very good at getting through the process and not detecting it. But once they're into the culture, it manifests itself. There are those who, unfortunately, as I said, assimilate and, and they don't even realize they're getting into that sort of way of acting and talking and the swagger and the, you know, the, the way they, and it can take weeks, not months or years, because even when I went back to Hendon as an intake manager, I saw that it's sort of like it's an internal radicalization that they absorb this quite extreme view of the them and us. So it's a question of picking that at the recruitment phase. How does that individual really understand um, diversity, how are they proactive? Have they got evidence even in their daily lives where they've challenged to ensure they understand the importance of that and not just nine to five weekends off type mentality. It's a 24 seven, three, six, five approach. Yeah. You can't be thinking, well, you know, I'm politically correct at work, but when I'm in the pub, anything goes in this, you know, especially when you've had a few drinks. Yeah. And you can't have that sort of victim-driven humour that creates so much um, pain in people and understand that you can do the same with the public. So those are the sort of things we've got to really get to grips of. And once you can detect it, then act. Because I remember, I was, again, I was, I was Mr. Unpopular on several occasions when I'm seeing that that individual or a group of individuals having a massive impact um, on a whole team. I was a superintendent in Hackney at the time, and, and I could see just doing some comparisons. So I'll go to the inspector and say, listen, your team, yep, good workers, but every single time they go to a call or a lot of the calls are going to, there's some sort of a, um, violence and we're getting complaints and we're not getting the proactivity that I'm seeing with team B who go to the same number of calls. We're not getting the complaints or the violence and they're showing. So I, I'm doing comparisons. I'm not saying you're bad and they're good, but come on. Yeah. Why is that? It's intelligence led. And speaking of which, of course, you were heavily involved in intelligence led and cultural intelligence uh, being introduced into the Met. Following the tragic death and, and killing of the, the young boy, Damiola Taylor, in August 2000. Incredibly sad story. Um, you were in, integral to developing uh, the affinity policing approach, which you've, you've described a little bit about the importance of, of community. Can you tell us about the significance of that approach to the force, but, but also why is it so important for the force to be reflective of its community? Well, it, well a reflective organization shows to the public that you value it. It's a value statement. And also the softer skills of language and appearance builds bridges and not barriers. And you saw that in the Damalola Taylor investigation because the first few weeks, there was this wall of silence because officers were going to do house to house inquiries and the residents, predominantly African Caribbeans, weren't even opening the doors, much less talking to them. Within hours of bringing in that team, which I was called to do, not only were the individuals, residents opening the doors, they were speaking clearly because they were, had that shared and common experience in appearance, in their language, in their cultural understanding and their cultural intelligence to be proactive, to ask those questions in a tactful way that that person felt, well, I'm going to give you that information and you've got to make sure I'm, I'm safe and I'm not going to be disclosed to the suspects, which led to actions 
that identified the witnesses and the suspects, which eventually led to the convictions. So it, it, it's not rocket science in, in the way that we just appeal to people's confidence in us. Now that happens when you have an organization that looks like them. Yeah. And it was frowned upon for any officer to speak in their native language. And I, I had an Asian officer, um, Dal Babu, who, who eventually became Borough Commander of Harrow. He had terrible issues where he couldn't use his, his native language. Oh no, we don't speak that sort of language, only English. So we know what you're saying. There's, there's suspicion that the officer be conspiring with a member of the public against the organization. When they're, what they're trying to do is get as much information from that individual by speaking in a, their native language to ensure, you know, that, that, that they feel confident. In, in the long term, does it alienate the white officers not to be involved in that, in that kind of aspect of the investigation? In the long term, is the aim that there will be no Black Police Officers Association, that, that we won't need affinity policing? I might be naive in that question, but what, what's your thoughts? In all honesty, when we joined, when we formed, rather, the Black Police Association, we had a 10-year shelf life. We weren't thinking it's sine die, it's for the foreseeable. It was actually, we are there to get that culture change, to really understand the importance of the issues. But here we are 25 plus years later, since we formed in 94. And the issues are still the same. It, what saddens me that the look and feel of policing, even though it's a more reflective organization in most force areas across the country, the way in which it has that heavy-handed type approach to the certain minority groups that, the, that make up the public has the same sort of impact as it was with a pre-McPherson. There seems to be, well, the first 10 years after McPherson, there was this real understanding of uh, of diversity and the recommendations that McPherson was being independently assessed with the Steve Lawrence steering group. So as we've already said, what got measured got done and there was a change internally as well as externally. The last 10 years with austerity and certain people being emboldened that they think they're unaccountable and think they're untouchable. A lot of it through Brexit because Brexit not only had an impact in the wider public, but also in policing. Mm. And it's emboldened certain people's views. I, 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 it saddens me to say that, but I, I've always said there's nothing wrong with the police service that cannot be fixed by what's right with it. Mm. All the ingredients are there. It just needs the leadership, ethical leadership at that, to ensure that one, they acknowledge that there's something wrong, they're not a perfect organization, even though they're a can-do, success-driven organization. Recognize there's something wrong. We're going to do something about it. And understand that there needs to be proper independent oversight because the organization, unfortunately, how it's set up, cannot police itself. This is David Coulthard on the Workplace Evolution Podcast, the podcast that gets the listener up to speed on leadership and management. Michael, do you really want me to say that? We've been talking a lot about culture, and actually a big part of, of cultural change is introducing or removing symbols. I wondered what your thoughts were on the actions taken in Bristol to remove certain statues that emphasised inequalities of the past. But also, do you see certain symbols that you would have removed from the force? Oh, that's a good question, yeah. Um, symbols, <laughs> depends how far you want to go back, really. Symbols can be very negative. If they're celebrating a part of history that showed, I, I think, an injustice on and so obviously slavery is one of the biggest injustices in, I think, in our history and our collective history. Never has it been a mass transformation of over 12 million people from where they lived 
to be enslaved. If, if, if your statue or your building not only has been brought into existence on the proceeds of that, but you're now celebrating it, that's a, like a double whammy. Again, that's not just a microaggression, that's a macro. If every time you're walking past that statue, that's celebrating that you held my ancestors in such hostile, degrading, animal-like existence. In fact, some animals were given higher status than my ancestors. That is gonna have a certain amount of trauma and understand how that trauma can result in you feeling, well, you, you don't celebrate me. I, I'm seen as expendable items. If we took it to the force, Leroy, were you working in every day and seeing pictures on, on the wall of uh, superintendents being celebrated or what, you know, what, what was it an image? Was it a building? Was it an well, it, it, it wasn't just a picture. It wasn't just a picture. Sometimes you knew there were certain hard-hitting supervisors who really didn't understand the impact of their supervision and leadership and the victims, not only internally, but externally, and they're getting promoted. They're getting actually promoted because of the way in which they're seen as, as celebrating for the wrong reasons. And I don't want to Are give- Are still on the wall? Are they still on the wall? Is there a picture up there or? Um, sometimes, you know, you, you've got certain um, individuals who, not necessarily they've got painting, but they're seen as, you know, strong leaders and they're, they're out there. And not just in the Met, look at the, the case in Hillsborough, the, the chief officer, he actually got promoted several times before someone actually said, well, you know, the 96, there's a reason why they died. And it wasn't just down, they were drunk and, you know, rowdy people just forced themselves into that stadium. There was real, not only errors made at, in that case, um, or how they policed a large crowd in a small stadium, but it was the cover-up that was clearly in people's minds that it took 20 odd years to get to the bottom of it, to have an inquiry, and then of course, show exactly what is now I know a lot of this is subjudice, but it's the perceptions of the public saying, listen, there is something wrong here. And and it's not necessarily a colour issue. It can be a class issue. Because if you know how policing was set up in 1829, even though Sir Robert Peel said the police, the public, public the police, but in, invariably it was there to protect the haves from the have-nots. Now, invariably, that was a class issue then, not so much a colour, but it was really to say, well, listen, it's protecting those who needed protecting because of their assets from those who might be stealing from them or whatever sort of threat they can pose. So that's, that construct is still there. Mm. And if that's and rewarded and celebrated in the buildings and the walls, it's going to affect perceptions. Absolutely. And I think that with Black Lives Matter, they want to get into organizations and individuals who normally would not buy into this because I suppose they think, oh, it's political correctness gone wrong. Same sort of thing with McPherson. But no, it actually makes us a more vibrant, respectful country that I believe we're the envy of the world. You know, when I go abroad and I speak to so many different police departments across the world. They can't believe we just patrol with, uh, well, in those days, a nightstick or an extended baton and a CS spray, and that was it. They can't believe you don't have a firearm, especially in America. When I speak to my, my colleagues in America, they still can't believe we can do that. And it's because of the culture that's really celebrating we're, in, we're important and we should be working with each other, not against each other. This is Devon Harris from the original Jamaica bobsleigh team. You're listening to the hottest thing not on ice, the Workplace Evolution Podcast. You mentioned it in, in this discussion, and I'm a big, big fan of the phrase, you know, what gets measured gets done. What are the most critical factors to measure in the force that ensures that we drive an inclusive and diverse culture? The recruiting process is key to make sure 
not only you're, you're get the best recruits and for, for the, the job that they're going to carry out, especially in the first few years, you know, individuals who are going to be going through quite risky uh, events and the shift work. And, but also they, they love people, you know, Sometimes I, I used to say in the organization, why are certain individuals in the organization, they don't even love themselves much less people or even their colleagues. So it's not surprising they, they do the things they do. So you've got to be able to filter out those who might be looking great on paper and they're quite good uh, in interviews or the assessment process, but you need to ensure, especially in their um, foundation training, um, a means by which you detect certain traits that need to be identified, not to hold it against them, maybe put them up on the development plan, or even to say, well, listen, have that uh, mentoring process. So it's not just my mentoring for minorities, but it's also um, mentoring someone who might be showing the wrong sort of ways of operating with people internally as well as externally. That can lead on to the retention progression piece, is pro positive action. We, I'm not an advocate of positive discrimination because that doesn't work. I believe judging people on their merits and to ensure that people are on a level playing field. So the positive action will hopefully create that level playing field by spotting the talent, nurturing it and bringing it up to the level of assessment so that they're on an equal par with the white colleagues. So they know how they're going to operate. It's quite clear and it's open to challenge if need be. And that will help also in the progression piece. The retention is also a very critical area because if officers feel they're not being valued, they're not gonna put themselves forward for lateral development or even promotion. And you're not getting that. There must be something wrong here. Is it the supervision? Is it the appraisals? Is it those corridor conversations I speak about? Is it those other microaggressions that might be in the ether of the organization that you're not picking up? How do you really do that health check? Have you got um, an equality framework? Are you really clear on how to make it that everyone buys into it? Because it actually helps the organization to be more efficient, effective. It's no point training hundreds of people if you lose half of them. And then you want to see people progressing in a way that other people see, actually, that individual is doing so well. That, for me, is a career path I want to take. And you, you see it, you, you, you think you can do it. Yeah. yeah. And hopefully that will keep the recruitment process going. And that organization seen as a, an employee of choice uh, i know that there's there's disagreements between yourself and cressida dick on various topics but you know that we have a, a woman at the top of the force which is positive to see my very last question you said about a, an us and them divide and in the book you've shared incredible tensions, discrimination against black and Asian minority police officers, being overlooked on promotion, abuse on duty, failures to, to act on complaints, the Freemasons we didn't even get started on, corruption and malpractice during the Stephen Lawrence investigation. What is a leader, just in a short, brief sentence, Leroy, what does a leader need to do to actually overcome an us and them divide towards a more inclusive culture? It's a statement of intent and walking the talk. You mentioned Chris Dick. I worked with Chris 20 odd years ago when she came back into the Met working on the McPherson recommendations. She actually walked the talk then. And that's why it saddens me 20 odd years later, she's not walking the talk. She un must understand her statement of intent to say that institutional racism does not exist or is not helpful is actually going against the ethos of what it was there to do. It's supposed to inspire. It's supposed to say, well, listen, despite what you might think of us, we're going to show you we can do better and ensure that we are an organization that's fit for purpose for the 21st century. Statement of intent, the narrative is so key. 
And if she can continue, I believe on this path, it's going to be counterproductive. She needs to change her approach, just like any head of organization. What you say can have such massive impact to embolden the wrong sort of people. We want to empower everyone so that they know how they fit in to ensure that the organization is an organization that makes us all proud and not have victims at the end of it. Thank you, Leroy. You don't seem to me like an individual that's just going to fade into the background, by the way, go home quietly during retirement. What's the next big chapter for you, Leroy? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to make sense of all this, um, you know, um, attention through the book and the, the film. It's beyond my wildest dreams. I really believe there's a divine intervention that's brought that together at a time such as this. But I would like to think in 2021 and beyond, I'll be looking at going into schools, which I've been doing for the last 20 years through my charity called Voyage Youth. I set up and working with year nine students. I would love to go into primary schools, year six, seven. If there are other sort of higher office callings, I'll be responsive to that because I, I can't discount the possibility that there might be a step into higher office, whether it's regional or, 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 or even local government. I, I really believe that I, I've still got a, a relevance and I want to ensure that the injustices that my parents suffered, my generation suffered, and my children's generation suffered is not replicated with my grandchildren. I don't want my grandchildren to suffer the same injustice and inequalities. So it's their generation I'm really focusing on because they shouldn't be going through the same experience. And, I, and I'm not just talking about a color or a class thing, but I'm talking about a wider public, which has been laid bare by COVID-19 and, and of course, Black Lives Matters. We've got to all step up and make a change that we all want to see. Leroy, good luck with your next chapter. Thank you so much for making our streets safer, for putting yourself at risk for such a long time on the front line, for continuing to put your heads above the parapet for the benefit of diversity and, and inclusivity, uh, and for sharing your valuable insights today with us on the podcast. We can find out more about Leroy on Twitter at LeroyLogan999. He's also on LinkedIn. Uh, we'll put the podcast notes to uh, and links to the book, Closing Ranks, My Life as a Cop. Many thanks for your time, Leroy Logan. Thank you very much for being here. And I really appreciate the very good questioning. In fact, I think you should be a cop. Your investigative, <laughs> your investigative questioning had me on my toes there, I tell you. Uh, well, I'm wearing blue especially. Okay. <laughs> exactly. That was the Workplace Evolution Podcast. Many thanks to Management Today and Michael Page, part of the Page Group, for making this podcast possible. If you want to contact us with your feedback and ideas, check out the podcast notes on how to get in touch. <laughs>